I'm looking for that optimal balance between expected growth and variance. In that scenario, you now want to look at your whole range and break it down into premium made hands, marginal made hands, draws, and junk. If the flop is not great or horrible for us, but better for our range than our opponent's range, now we have some thinking to do and now we're talking about poker. What I tend to base my continuation bet size on is the connectedness with the flop. Sometimes I will bet larger to make it clear they are playing for their entire stack. When value betting, you want to bet as much as you can and still get a call. When bluffing, you want to bet as little as you can and still get a fold. I think it's a good idea to keep them consistent. Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. And today we're going to talk a little bit about post-flop bet sizing. Before we do that, I want to thank our contributing pros today, Jonathan Little with PokerCoaching.com, Chris Fox Wallace with Next Level Poker, our official tour, and Mike Schneider with the Poker is Fun Tour. You're also going to be hearing from recreational players Taylor Moss, John Somsky, Rob Washam, Don Ducate, and Steve Olson. A couple of other uh, announcements. I do have, uh, I freed up some more space in my Millionaire Maker if you want to back me in that deal. Uh, I've had great, uh, great response to that. I've got two uh, 5% uh, shares uh, outstanding uh, that are available, 80 bucks pop. Also, if you want to wear a Rec Poker patch, we have adhesive and non-adhesive. Uh, we have a number of folks that were wearing them this week that had pictures taken playing a tournament. John Bensky, Alberto Briones Moraz, and Nancy Patterson uh, posted pictures. And also, uh, we had a couple of winners of people that wear the Rec Poker patches. Alberto and Brian Mori uh, are both folks that wear patches that, uh, that won tournaments uh, this week, but they didn't quite have the patches on yet, so uh, they're not entered in the drawing yet. Uh, we do have a drawing. If you have the winner's photo taken with a patch, uh, you'll be entered into the drawing to win 50 bucks. So take advantage of that deal. We've got some folks that are wearing patches that are new this week as well. Seth Erickson, Scott DeLong, Brian Berthume, Brian Soja, and Steve Webb are also going to be wearing patches in the near future. So a lot of folks doing that and appreciate that. Appreciate the support and the encouragement and telling folks about uh, what it is that we're doing. Before we get into this week's subjects, I did get some thoughts that were submitted a little bit too late to include last time from Mike Schneider, who's a Minnesota Poker Hall of Famer, great guy, and he uh, gave us this feedback regarding pre-flop bet sizing at loose tables early in weekly tournaments. That was a subject from last week. Mike said this, I know some very good no-limit players that have trained younger brothers for micro and small stakes no-limit cash online, and many of them have ended up having whoever they are training Open raise for something like six to seven times the big blind, with the reason being these players are so loose and bad, this is the only way to narrow the field a little bit, and so few so few people three-bet uh, close to optimally at these stakes that we're almost never going to get punished for opening so huge. Now, obviously, a cash game, Mike says, is different than a tournament, and a typical player playing a $10 buy-in or whatever no-limit online isn't for sure the same as in a small buy-in weekly live tournament, but I think many of these same principles hold true. I know an argument for opening smaller sizes is that you're risking less chips and it'll probably reduce your variance a bit, but I think the added benefit of taking more pots heads up or three ways might push the scale close for making an argument to open for huge sizes early in small buy-in live tournaments. We do love players calling preflop with garbage hands because our superior holdings will win out against them in the long run. 
But if we end up six ways every flop, it's going to be a variance fest, trying to navigate through those landmines and essentially playing patient, fit or fold poker. So in a nutshell, if you're playing with players who won't correctly adjust to huge sizing for open raises, I certainly wouldn't shun the idea of doing so. I know I'm being wishy-washy about which way I'd pick, but if you held a gun to my head and made me decide, I think I'd still opt for my standard preflop small opening size because ultimately those sizings are more GTO, and the smaller pot sizes will mean my bluff bet sizings can be smaller too, therefore meaning one failed bluff isn't going to leave my chip stack minuscule early on. Okay, Mike, thanks for sending in that info. Good follow-up to last week's discussion. So with that, let's take a a quick uh, second to thank Running Aces, and then we'll get back to today's primary discussion. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Throughout our hand examples, we've heard a number of different thoughts about bet sizing post-flop, but I would like to dig a little bit into this directly. I know our pros prefer to address specific hand situations, but I would really like our listeners to be able to understand a bit more of the strategic theory behind bet sizing on the flop. So let's assume that blinds are 100-200 and we have at least 10,000 chips or 50 big blinds. We raise from middle position to 500, and we get called by the button, and then the blinds both folded. So we have a pot of 1,300 chips, heads up, out of position. Now regardless of what we're holding, the flop will either be great for us, be really bad for us, will not be great or horrible, but better for our range than our opponents, or will not be great or horrible, but better for our opponent's range than for ours. Assuming we decide we want to continuation bet, How does the flop connection with our hand, the four options that I just talked about, how does that impact the size of our bet? Or do we bet the same size regardless of how we connected? How does our opponent's playing style impact our bet sizing? And are there any other major factors that could impact the size of our bet? So these are the questions that I posed uh, to our recreational players. So first of all, my thoughts Although we're talking about bet sizing, it's important to mention that I am not c-betting as often as I used to. One of the main determinations of my decision to c-bet is the board texture. I'm feeling much more strategic about when to c-bet than I used to, which was pretty much always. With that said, the question is really about how big to make the flop bet, assuming the decision was made to bet it. I used to try to be consistent with my bet sizes, and they used to be quite large, about two-thirds to three-quarters pot. And then I went through a period where my bet sizing would be different based on board texture, hand strength, and opponent type. Currently, I'm back to bet sizing that tends to be consistent again, but quite a bit lower, often betting a quarter to a third the size of the pot. Some of this is what I learned from listening to Mike Schneider's take on bet sizing over the past several discussions, and from others as well. Um, but, But I think Mike had some really good insight into the bet sizing. Now, there's pros and cons to making big continuation bets versus small continuation bets, as well as pros and cons to keeping consistent bet sizes versus varying bet sizes. At the end of the day, I now prefer consistent, smaller, post-flop bet sizes for the following reasons. In the games that I play, people will generally continue after my C-bet, regardless if it's big or small, if they're going to play or not. So therefore, my fold equity is basically the same regardless of what I bet. So why not bet small? 
So from a fold equity perspective, a smaller continuation bet is a better investment. If I am continuation betting with a strong made hand, then I've given up some value by betting smaller. However, I believe that I can get some of this back with larger bets on future streets if I do get the call on the flop. If I'm continuation betting with a weak hand and no draws, then I get some good information and if I decide to give up on future streets, I reduce the amount that I have put into the pot. If I'm on a draw, then I have given myself better odds to hit the draw. If I get re-raised, then I can make the decision on my reaction based on the strength of my hand and my opponent. If I end up folding, I have reduced the downside loss. In games where players are a bit more attentive to bet sizing, I'd be more prone to altering my bet sizes, but I still think I would end up primarily doing smaller, consistent C-bets. As I continue to consider my overall tournament paradigm, I'm looking for that optimal balance between expected growth and variance at each stage of the tournament. I spent a lot of years leading a capital markets hedging function, and one of the key investment concepts is the Sharpe Ratio. It's the relationship between expected return and standard deviation. Or put another way, it's the relationship between risk and reward. I believe this concept is applicable in tournament poker and is tightly related to the concept of utility theory that I've talked about in the past. When I have the best hand, smaller bet sizes lower our expected return, which is the size of the pot that we could win. When I have the worst hand, smaller bet sizes increase our expected return. What it does is it actually reduces our expected losses. So it's a higher expected return. So if we consider a distribution of expected results for a hand, like a normal distribution, like a bell curve, playing smaller pots creates a bell curve that is more centered with reduced tails. These tails are the big pots that we win or lose. Therefore, smaller continuation bets reduce our variance, up or down. And aggregated over many hands and an entire tournament results in lower overall variance. This means we are less likely to have a big stack due to the pots that we win not being as hefty, but we are also less likely to go bust because the pots we lose are not as many of our chips. Another advantage of this downside protection is that we, we will get to see more hands. We will have more opportunities. In those situations where variance has not been in our favor early in tournaments, we will get more opportunities. And this additional life can create the opportunity for positive variance to kick in and lead to building a stack when we would have otherwise been out of the tournament already. So the bottom line is that I like smaller, more consistent bet sizing because it reduces the overall variance, especially early in a tournament. As a side note, for opponents that see this as weak, it's a great opportunity to build a stack when they overplay their read, assuming that we are weak. So those are my thoughts. Uh, let's hear from our contributing professionals. And this week we have input from Jonathan Little with PokerCoaching.com, Chris Fox-Wallace with Next Level Poker, and Mike Schneider with the Poker is Fun Tour. Hello, this is Jonathan Little. And this week's question is right up my alley because at my training site, PokerCoaching.com, where you can get a free one-week trial, we have monthly homework questions where I put the students in a situation, like say everyone folds to you in the cutoff seat, I ask them which hands are you going to be raising here? They'll tell me which hands they're going to raise. Then, let's say the big blind calls, the flop will come, whatever, 974. The opponent checks, and then I say, what are you doing with your range? And what I'm asking is, I want you to break down every single hand in your range and telling me if you're going to check or if you're going to bet. And then we'll say, okay, let's say you bet and the opponent calls. 
That means all those hands you checked are no longer in your range. Keep that in mind. Now the turn's another card, let's say a jack. If your opponent checks, what are you doing with your current range now? And then we'll go through that process again, and they'll say which hands they're checking and which hands they're betting. And then we'll go to the river, and by the end of the hand, they will have hopefully thoroughly thought out this situation, and now make no mistakes in the future, or at least fewer mistakes. So when determining how you should play your range on the flop, well, first thing is, are we in position or out of position? That's very relevant. Second thing is, do we have a range advantage or do we not? Um, a range advantage basically means that you should have way more good hands than your opponents. If you run your whole range against their whole range, you'll see that you win like 60% of the time, which is pretty nice. This is off will often occur when you raise from early position and the big blind calls. You're going to have a very tight range starting. They're going to have a very loose range. Then the flop comes like all high cards or very uncoordinated. That's a spot where the preflop raiser will have a very big advantage. So if you have a range advantage, very often you should be betting frequently and you should be betting for small amounts, often one third pot or something like that. So you should be betting almost every time. There are some hands you may want to check, but we'll get to that in just a second. And when you are betting, you want to bet small. So that's the spot where you're going to be betting almost all your bluffs. All right, next, say we don't have a range advantage. Let's say you run your ranges and you have like 52% equity or less maybe 55% equity or less, something like that. In that scenario, you now want to look at your whole range and break it down into premium made hands, marginal made hands, draws, and junk. And then you frequently want to be betting with your premium made hands and your draws, because the draws are basically acting as bluffs, and you want to be checking with your marginal made hands and your junk. And you're going to find that this often has you continuation betting about 50 or 60% of the time, give or take a little bit depending on the texture of the board. And when you are betting in this manner, you typically want to be betting on the bigger side because presumably you, whenever you don't have much of a range advantage, that's usually going to be when the board is somewhat draw heavy and coordinated. And when you are betting there, you don't really care if your opponent folds because usually whatever hand they're folding has some equity. So again, you want to be betting with your premium made hands. That's usually going to be top pair, good kickers and better. And you want to be betting with your draws. And depending on how your range is structured and your bet size, you usually want to have about two draws to every one premium hand. That's a pretty aggressive strategy. But as you move to the flop or the turn, you're going to want to have about 50-50 draws to value to premium made hands. And then on the river, again, depending on your bet size, if you're potting it on the river, for example, you want to have about two premium made hands to one bluff. So the, the ratio goes from being very bluff-heavy on the flop to very premium-made hand-heavy by the river. Um, so then you're checking with your marginal-made hands. This is going to be stuff like top-pair marginal kicker that you can easily call with on the turn in the river, right? When you check back with top-pair, you're not planning on folding ever. You're also checking back some medium pairs that you're often going to call down with. Um, you're checking maybe back maybe some bottom pairs, although maybe those fall into the bluff the, the draw category. It is worth mentioning bottom pair with a kicker is a draw. It's basically a five-out draw. Um, and sometimes that is a marginal made hand or it's a draw, depending on how the board is. And then you're also going to have some junk. This could be stuff like overcards. Like say it comes 9-8-3 with two diamonds and you have just king, queen of clubs. That's a spot where maybe you just want to check because there are a lot of better draws you could have, like um, queen jack for a gut shot and overcards or jack 10 for an open-ended straight draw, two diamonds, or um, just like an ace of diamonds or something like that. So anyway, there are a lot of draws that you could conceivably have there. So say you do check back the king-queen, notice you're going to get a king or a queen on the turn sometimes and can easily keep calling. And also you may think, oh man, if I'm checking back king-queen, I'm just going to fold if my opponent bets. That's true, but also you're going to be checking back some top and medium pairs that you're always going to call with. 
So you want to make sure that each portion of your range is not obviously strong or obviously weak. And what a lot of amateur players do is they get stuck thinking about their exact hand and instead they need to be thinking about their range. And whenever you are thinking about your range, you want to play in a manner that makes you difficult to play against. You never want to find yourself in a spot where you are, let's say, folding to all of your opponent's bets or let's say calling all of your opponent's bets because then your opponent often has a very easy strategy. If they, if they think you're folding every time, they should just bluff a lot. And if they think you're going to call every time, they should only value bet, right? So anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Again, you can go through all of the past homework questions over at pokercoaching.com. You can sign up for a completely free seven-day trial. Go there, binge it, go through all of them, and then cancel on me. I do not mind. I want everyone here to get better at poker. So go check it out. Um, that will take an investment of time and you know, mind resources. These homework questions are not easy. But that is what is required to get good at poker, and I hope you take me up on the offer. Fox here from Next Level Poker. We have yet another situation this week where my answer is basically, it depends. At least it starts with that. Uh, some pros will tell you that your bet sizing should be the same no matter what your opponent is or how well the flop hits you. Um, some people are overly focused on very defensive game theory optimal type of play where they always make the same bet sizing. There are definitely a lot of poker coaches out there who feel that way. But I think if your opponent is very weak, if your opponent is very inexperienced, you can definitely vary your bet sizing in a lot of ways, not just uh, based on the things that GTO would allow, like flop texture and position and stack size, but also on how well the flop hit you and what you think your opponent will do. That's exploitive bet sizing, and I think it's very important because you make most of your money from bad players, and the more money you can make from those bad players, the better that is. If I'm uh, heads up in a pot with a very strong player, I go right to unexploitable game theory optimal style play. But I'd rather not be in that situation, and I don't end up in that situation very often because I'm not trying to play hands with the strongest players at my table. If I'm in a tournament where everybody's that good, I'll never play that tournament again. That's not what we're looking for. And if you make some minor mistakes that are exploitable through your bet sizing, uh, I think that it's worth it to be able to exploit your opponents. As long as you know what you're doing, you have to be really certain that you're a step ahead of your opponent. Uh, we all tend to overestimate our own skill levels, so make sure that you're absolutely certain. There's a lot of margin for error there. If you were, if you were going to be right 60% of the time about being a step ahead of your opponent, it might be worth it to try. But to be right 60% of the time, you probably have to feel like you're going to be right 90% of the time or more. So I try to only do this when I'm certain that I know about my opponents. It gives you another reason to pay a lot of attention to your opponents and that you can play against them differently if you're sure that you know who they are and how they play and you can outplay them. So you can vary your bet sizing on those things if you're facing a weak opponent. As a basic starting point, if you're going to bet, bet two-thirds of the pot. You're not making a huge mistake in almost any hand if you do that. But if you want to go to exploitive bet sizing, there are a lot of other ways to play. Recently, in the last year or two, I've seen a lot of something called the down bet. And I've used it quite a bit myself over the years, which is betting a quarter or a third of the pot on the flop. And it's often followed by the big bet, the down bet, big bet, where you bet a third or a quarter of the pot on the flop. And then you bet three quarters of the flop on the turn, 
a lot of hands will float, float the flop, but then very few hands will call the turn. And so you get some extra money in there and then you steal the pot on the turn or you put a lot of pressure on people. That's one of the ways that you can attack your opponents if you think that it's an opponent who will be susceptible to that sort of attack. Um, in the situation we're looking at this week, the stacks are pretty deep. So you're really looking to get hand definition, control the pot size, decide how big the pot is going to be and when it's going to end. Those things are important when you're playing with deep stacks. If these were 20 big blind stacks, you're looking to either get all your opponent's chips in uh, or chase your opponent out of the pot because the pot's going to be very valuable to you. But in this case, a small pot doesn't mean that much to your stack, but building a pot that you can steal means more. And building a pot when you have a real hand means even more than that. So if the flop is great for us, and we don't know very much about the button who called, um, but we're out of position, we're now playing a pot that's about 13% of our stack. Now it's probably more like 15% of our stack since we put some chips in there. Um, if the flop is great for us, usually you will want to bet and bet some reasonable number on the flop. You want to start building a pot if the flop is great for you. All too often people slow play because they really like the flop. And the time to slow play can be when the hand range you're facing is very polarized, and that's a whole other podcast we could do. But it really has very little to do with how strong your hand is. The fact that you have quads is not a reason to slow play. You can often slow play top pair, top kicker more often than you would slow play quads. Simply because your opponent's hand range may be very polarized against quad, against uh, top pair, top kicker. Against quads, it's not polarized at all. You know you have the best hand, and you're just trying to figure out how to make the most money. There is a psychological negative that comes out of betting the flop when you have a monster and having someone fold and thinking, oh, I should have checked and I could have made some more money. It's not really true. Um, maybe you would have made a small amount more money on the turn or the river. Maybe you would have been sucked out on and lost a huge pot because you have a big hand and you can't get away from it. Or probably they would have just folded later anyway. Whereas if they have a big hand as well, if they've got a hand that's going to pay you off, if they've got a draw, something like that, you're costing yourself a lot of money by not betting the flop, by not trying to get all the value that you can out of your hand. You don't want a card to come on the turn that kills your action. There's tons of reasons, but it's almost always better to lead, especially when you're the pre-flop raiser on the flop. And it's fairly common for people to call flop bets these days. If you're being exploitive, people tend to call uh, 60% of the pot flop bet much more often than they call 80%. I would guess there's probably a 20% a difference in the frequency with which they call those two bets in like a typical you know, $200, $300 tournament. Some opponents will really see that bigger bet as a, a very strong hand. <clears throat> if the flop is really bad for us, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't matter how badly it has missed us, but we're really thinking about how bad is it for our opponent or good is it for our opponent. If you have a pair of fours and you're raised pre-flop and the, and the board is queen, ten, eight with two diamonds, uh, it's very likely that that hit your opponent somehow. But you should be watching your opponents to see if they hit it. Sometimes you'll see your opponent miss the flop if you're watching carefully. If you're watching their eyes, if you're paying attention to everything about them, you may see them miss the flop and be able to bet there anyway. But if it's a flop they very likely hit, that flop is very bad for you, which is uh, maybe a time to check fold. 
if on the other hand you have a pair of fours and the flop comes ace ace nine that's not such a bad flop for you you're the pre, you're the pre-flop raiser and with two aces out there it's not as likely they have one so if you're being exploitive think about what your opponent is going to see as a scary bet and what they won't that may be a good spot for a down bet but you may be risking a lot of chips doing that if you're going to make a big turn bet so if it's somebody who folds easily who doesn't want to call without a hand you can get away with um the pot's 1300 you could get away with a bet of 600 here and it may be scary enough for them to fold if on the other hand it's somebody who may doubt you and you have to make it 1100 to put some heat on them there you go if it's somebody who's going to doubt you either way bet the 600 or just check and see how they like that sometimes a check is scarier than a bet especially on an ace ace flop and if you want to tell a, a you know a reasonable story, if you check and they bet, check raise them. See if they've really got it. But it's all about knowing your opponent, and I know that's not what we're talking about here. If the flop is not great or horrible for us, but better for our range than our opponent's range, now we have some thinking to do, and now we're talking about poker. Um, if it's better for your range than your opponent's range, you bet it. Whether you hit it or missed it or anything else... You bet it, and if your opponent is smart and they know that it missed most of their range and it hit most of your range, when it's missed them, they'll fold. Um, if they don't know these things, then you're not worried about what your opponent thinks about ranges. You're worried about what your actual hand is and what their range is. You know, Against a good opponent, you worry about both players' ranges. Against a bad opponent, you only worry about their range. That is how we can switch from exploitive to unexploitable play. Against a good player, you're, you're unexploitable. You, you worry about both ranges and how this flop hits both ranges. Uh, against a bad player, just worry about what their range is and how your hand plays against it. And if the flop is better for your opponent's range than yours, and they know that, then if you have a real hand, you want to bet it and then maybe check-raise the turn... Uh, do something so that you can get a lot of chips in there because it will surprise them if they're a smart if a smart player and they think that, that that flop missed your hand most of the time. If it really did miss your hand, it was it was not great or horrible for you, but it in fact missed you. Um, then you may want to let it go. If your opponent is a smart thinking player, they're typically going to know that that doesn't hit your range very often. You know, if you raise preflop in this situation with um, you know a lot of big cards. And the flop comes three, four, six with three diamonds. Um, they may not be very afraid of it hitting your range, and they may know that it's very scary for their range. So, a good player, you, you may just want to check fold that if you've got a hand like king, queen of clubs. You just it's just crappy. Um, if on the other hand, it's a player whose range, you know, has a lot of those, a lot of big cards in it as well, it may be worth it to make the small bet and see if they fold. If it's a person you have to convince, it may be better to make the big bet and make them fold. Um, I, I do like tailoring my line to my opponents in most situations because my when my opponents are bad players, I can make a lot of money that way. Um, the size of your bet just has to change according to your opponents and, and the table and the field and how things are perceived as well. If... I'm playing in Minnesota in, um, say, the, the 150 double stack on Tuesday at Running Aces. I know Minnesota players, and I know that they have a lot more respect for that bigger flop bet than they do for the smaller one. 
Now, they may treat me differently because a lot of people at Running Aces know who I am. But against a random player, when I see that bigger flop bet after a big pre-flop raise, it's a big hand most of the time. It's usually aces, kings, queens, or jacks. When I see the smaller bet, it it is often a weaker hand. Now, against a good player, don't take these things to be true. But against a, an average or random player, these things are typically true. But if you come to Vegas, you may see the opposite of that. If you go to California, you may see the opposite of that. It all depends on the field that you're in and then the table and then more specifically the player. So know your opponents and know what they do in different situations. And you don't have to worry as much about playing game theory optimal so often, playing that unexploitable style. And you can attack them more often with your bets because every bet should be a threat or an invitation depending on what you want your opponents to do. In this case, if you flopped a set... You may want to lead for 500, especially on like an ace-5-3 board when you have a set of fives. Uh, You may want to make a small lead. If they have an ace, they'll call it. Then check the turn. If they have an ace, they'll bet it. And you can raise. And you hope they flopped two pair or turned two pair, and we'll pay you off. Um... Also, just having people know that you can bet the flop and then check-raise the turn will slow them down against you in the future, and they won't call your flop bets as much, and they won't bet after you check to them on the turn as much. So really think about attacking people with your bets rather than having a standard bet. But if you must have a standard bet, make it about two-thirds of the pot. Good luck. So Mike's thoughts were written and sent in. So Mike says this, The first thing for us to consider is the fact that we're playing this pot out of position the entire hand. So for me, from a starting point, that in itself is going to restrict a few of my bet sizing options in a way that I will seldom be betting anything outside of small bet sizes. Starting off with the flops that are great for us, let's first look at the ones that are expected to be within our range, which might be a hand like Ace-King on an Ace-King-6 rainbow flop. This board textures our opponents are expecting us to be c-betting a lot. So I will do it here since it typically is a better flop for a raising hand than a calling hand. Out of position, most of my flop bet sizing is going to be small, and here it is no different, and I'd be aiming for one-fourth to one-third pot size bet, so probably around 400 or 350. I like this sizing because it lets our bluffs be cheaper. So if we have 8-7 suited on this ace-king-6 flop, we can also be firing that smaller size bet, in theory getting it through a fair chunk of the time. The other type of flop that is great for us are ones that are great for us but more likely to hit our opponent's calling range than our raising range. Let's use us having pocket 8s in the flop coming 10-8-5 or 8-5-3. Either of these flops that lack much in Broadway cards are theoretically better for our opponent than for us. I'm going to almost always check the 8-5-3 flop because on this board type, I'm going to be checking my clanks at least half the time. And if my opponent opts to check back, it's seldom going to be a disaster for us because there aren't going to be too many turn cards that can kill us, barring them having one of the couple of the straight draws and making it. Note, though, straight draws are such a small percent of their possible hands. The 10-8-5 one, I'm probably going to fire 350 or 400 bet out unless I know my opponent to be the type to take the rope when I give it to them. Then I'm willing to check. This board is a little different, Just because having a slightly bigger combination of cards makes it more likely they can have a straight draw, gut shot shot draw, or a pair. 
hands such as Queen Jack or Jack Nine are going to be in their range quite often. So I'd love if some money gets put in by them at times when they have this. Additionally, a lot of people check back flopped pairs sometimes, so a small bet on our end is nice to do versus these types of players. Moving on to flops that we miss on, I'm generally going to be betting one-fourth to one-third pot when it's a board type that treats our range better than our opponents, while primarily using do I have many backdoor draws as the deciding factor on whether to bet or to check. That means if I have 8-7 suited and the flop comes ace-king-six rainbow with one of our suits, I'm going to bet that 350 number. The reason for this is because by betting it makes more it makes it more likely we'll get to realize our backdoor equity than if we check. I know that seems backwards, but this bet sizing often will put our opponent in a weird predicament of, gee, this bet size feels so small, but yet it's just big enough that it's a stupid size that feels weird to raise unless I have it. So it quite often gives them no choice but to call. And now then, we got to see a turn card for not that much money. Whereas if we check, most of the time our opponent bets an amount larger than this, and we have to fold. Moreover, by betting when the board is more likely to have hit us than our opponent, we succeed at getting folds sometimes. Whereas if we check, we never get to take the pot down. Conversely, if the flop is king-10-3, spade-spade-heart, and we have 8-7 of diamonds, I consider this to be a perfect candidate to check and just give up. Note, we do have a backdoor straight draw, but it's far weaker since if a 9 comes on the turn, Queen-Jack already makes a straight, and any jack on the river might be no good as well. And even though, yes, a king-10-3 flop is typically alright for a preflop raiser, we're still just going to give up. If we aren't giving up with this type of hand on this type of flop, we're over c-betting. And that leads to both a disaster in our game tree and a disaster to our chip stack. Lastly, when looking at the flops that are a bunch of low cards and we have two suited high cards, I'm going to be betting one-third to one-fourth pot when I have a runner-runner flush draw and runner-runner straight draw, and otherwise checking and giving up when I don't, for a lot of the same principles I've already mentioned. This bet sizing is going to be the most positive EV at helping us realize our equity while also granting us the possibility of winning the pot while, all, while helping prevent us from over betting flops. Okay, thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate you sending in that information. Let's take a quick break here to thank our official sponsor, Running Aces, and then we'll come back with thoughts from our contributing recreational players. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Okay, let's close the episode with input from our recreational players, Taylor Moss, John Somsky, Rob Washam, and Steve Olson. And before their submitted audio, I've got uh, some handwritten notes here from Don Ducate. Don says, I bet the same amount on the flop regardless of the situation. My bet size is 500 if I do continuation bet. I do not bet on a very bad board for us. Example would be 3 to a flush or 3 to a straight that we have no part of. So I bet in 3 out of the 4 situations. My thinking is if the board is good for us, I want to get value if my opponent happens to hit a piece of the flop. If I miss the flop some, somewhat, I bet to bluff to try to take it down right away, and if called, I reevaluate on the turn. I slow down on my continuation betting when facing more than two opponents. I believe during heads up, I am aggressive until I am shown resistance. The downside here, of course, we are out of position. I usually decide to slow down after the flop bet based on my view of the villain's playing strength. 
All right, thanks so much, Don. Greetings, Rec Poker listeners. This is Taylor Moss. This week, we're talking about post-flop bet sizing. If we remember our discussion from last week, we were talking about pre-flop bet sizing and what we would consider in terms of what changes our uh, pre-flop bet size. And my answer was very static, that I don't tend to change a whole lot. Uh, It just depends a little bit on our position. Um, But when we talk about post-flop bet sizing, I think there's a lot that should be considered when we're making a continuation bet. And I believe that's the crux of this argument here, or this discussion here, this, you know, if we're continuation betting, how big should we be continuation betting? Um, In the question that's listed out, it kind of asks us, you know, it doesn't matter what we're holding, but the flop is either going to be great for us, bad for us, or, you know, better for our range, worse for our are better for our opponent's range and those things go into consideration when we're deciding to make a continuation bet but I don't think it determines uh, what our bet sizing should be so I think whether or not the range hit our or the flop hit our range better than our opponents should be a deciding factor of if we should continuation bet I don't think it should be a determination of the size of our continuation bet what I tend to base my continuation bet size on is the connectedness with the flop. And by that, you might hear the terms like a wet board or a dry board. Um, So on a wet board, uh, cards that connect very well with each other, I tend to bet much bigger than I would if it was a dry board. Uh, So if we see a flop, uh, regardless of where we are, uh, early position, late position, and the flop comes out ace, four, seven, all three different suits, I feel like that's a very dry board. And if I was to continuation bet, I would make it a smaller continuation bet somewhere in the half pot, maybe a little bit less, closer to third pot, depending on the stage of the tournament that we're at. Um, But if instead the flop came queen, jack, eight, and there was two of the same suit on the board, that would be a flop that I would be much inclined to bet like three-fourths the size of the pot. Um, Just because if our opponent has a draw, um, we don't want to give them the right price to go after their draw. They're much more likely to have a draw on those wet boards. Um, So in the previous example of a 7-4, really no flushes can be... Uh, chasing anything there's not many straight outs you know maybe they have five six but that's such a specific hand Um, it kind of limits our opponent's range if they call to be pairs two pairs maybe sets and nothing more than that Uh, but if we're on the other example the queen jack eight there's a lot of straight set could be drawing a lot of flushes that could be drawing and we don't want to give either of them the right price to call so we try and make our bet size a little bit bigger to induce a fold and then the good thing about this is when it's a wet board we can bet much bigger with our draws because that's how we would bet in any situation where we decide to continuation bet Um, likewise with that dry board um, it's unlikely that we hit something Uh, outside of the ace but we can still represent the ace because if our opponent doesn't have one they're not on draws and they would just be floating if they called our bet 
Um, so it goes into what are we trying to defend in our hand range and then also what are we trying to fold out of our opponent's hand range and we should be sizing our bet to try and accomplish what we want to accomplish. Hi Rec Poker listeners, this is John Somsky giving my thoughts on post-flop bet sizing. In the scenario, we raised from middle position to 500 and got called by the button and we have a pot of 1,300 chips and we have at least 10,000 chips uh, behind. So the question is, what, how do I base the decision on my bet sizing? Well, in general, I try not to uh, vary the, my flop size bet sizing on my holdings. I base it upon the texture of the board, whether it's good for us or for our opponent, but not so much on whether the board actually hit my hand, more on whether the board was likely to hit my range. And I also base it upon whether the board is a wet board or a dry board. If it's a wet or a coordinated board, meaning it has flush draws or straight draws possible, then I will tend to bet a little higher because it's going to take more chips for the bet to get people off of their draws or for the the draws not to be a profitable to call with. Uh, and for a dry flop, I'll tend to bet a little less because it's less likely to have hit someone unless they happen to actually hit a card on that flop. So in this case, I'd probably bet 900 to 1,000 chips for a wet flop and 600 to 700 for a dry flop. Of course, I do alter my decision of whether or not to bet based upon both my range and my actual holdings. I just don't try not to base my bet sizing based upon the holdings. Of course, I don't always do as I say. Uh, Sometimes I still screw up, but that's what I'm trying to do. I tend to bet more often if the flop is better for our range than our opponent's range. If it's a great board for us, I'll bet my normal amount based upon the board texture, not on my uh, holdings. If it's great for my range, then it'll be a larger bet. If it's average for my range, it'll be a little bit lower. Or bad for my range, it'll be lower. Um, If it's a bad board for us, but in general good for our range, then I'll make my bet based upon the board texture. If it's bad for our actual holdings and bad for our range, I'll tend not to bet. Uh, If it's better for our range than our opponent's range, again, I'll bet based upon the board texture. And once again, if it's worse for our range than our opponent's range, I'll tend not to bet as often. But if I do bet, it'll be based upon the board texture. Uh, if our opponent is, there are some exceptions to this. If our opponent is strictly fit or fold, I'll continuation bet more often. Uh, and if they're very sticky, I won't continuation bet as, as often, unless they almost always fold to a second barrel. <coughs> In which case, I will continuation bet with the plan of continuation or continuing to bet on the turn. There are some items that influence my bet sizing. As I mentioned before, board texture is the main one. Effective stack size is another one. If the effective stack size, meaning the smallest stack between myself and my opponent, is small, 
then I'll tend to bet less because a smaller bet still puts a large amount of percent, uh, pressure on the opponent based upon the percentage of chip stack. Likewise, if I have a small stack, I want to bet smaller because then I have more room to maneuver later in the hand or in later hands if I don't win this particular pot. Um, one exception to that is if I have a large stack and I am have an opponent with a very short stack, sometimes I will bet larger to make it clear they are playing for their entire stack if they continue, particularly if it's someone who I think will likely do a bluff all-in type of bet, uh, then that'll kind of preempt that. Uh, I also will vary the bet sizing based upon opponent tendencies. If an opponent will interpret small bets as weak, then sometimes I will make an exploitive play by underbetting the pot if I happen to have a very strong holding. This is about the only time I actually try to vary my bet size based upon my holdings, but of course you have to be very careful when making exploitative plays because you can be exploited if they figure out that's what you're doing. So I, I don't do that very often. But anyway, that's what I try to do uh, with my post-flop bet sizing. This is Rob Washam for the Rec Poker Podcast, March 31st edition. Today we'll be talking about post-flop bet sizing. In particular, continuation betting. We have four different scenarios to discuss, so let's start. Scenario one, the flop is great for us. We are betting for value. Against an opponent who is flop honest, we can bet larger as he will fold to any size bet and call any size bet when he connects. We get more value from our made hands by betting somewhere between three quarters to full pot. This bet sizing will work on a dry or a wet flop. On a wet flop, we are denying our opponent the proper odds to call with a drawing hand. When he calls, he is making a mistake. In poker, you make money when your opponent makes mistakes. Scenario 2. The flop is really bad for us. We are betting as a bluff. Against an opponent who is flop honest, we can bet smaller, as he will fold to any size bet and call any size bet when he connects. In this case, we should continuation bet smaller, somewhere between one-third to one-half pot. We are saving money when they call, but will still get a fold when they've missed. Scenario 3. With range advantage, we are betting for value, so the same dynamics as in Scenario 1 would apply. Scenario 4. With range advantage, we are betting as a... With range disadvantage, we are betting as a bluff. The same dynamics as in Scenario 2 would apply. Varying your bet size on different scenarios can be exploited by an observant thinking player. In the smaller daily tournaments, most opponents will not be that observant. Added to the fact that these scenarios will not happen with enough frequency for the pattern to be recognized. We talked about a flop honest opponent, but if our opponent is more nuanced, we may face floats and or raises. Against these types of players, you may want to stay on the smaller continuation bet size like half to two-thirds pot. Other factors include that include our position and pot geometry. In position, we can use the upper part of our betting bet sizing. Pot geometry will dictate our sizing based on how many streets we expect to bet. Nothing worse than getting to the river with no more than a quarter-sized pot bet remaining. General thoughts on bet sizes.
When value betting, you want to bet as much as you can and still get a call. When bluffing, you want to bet as little as you can and still get a fold. Talk to you next week. Hey guys, Steve-O here. Uh, This week, uh, Steve Friendland has posted the question about bet sizing. Let's try to get into a little bit deeper. Uh, The blinds are 100, 200. Everyone's got around 50 bigs. We're going to raise from middle position to 500. The button is going to call. Both blinds fold. So now we've got a pot of about 1,300. Uh, The first thing we have to realize, obviously, is A, we're playing from out of position. Never ideal, but it's just the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, three, four scenarios. Uh, the first one is the 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 flop is great for us. A couple things to think about when bets, you know, with bet sizing and continuation betting. A, I always like to think a card ahead, meaning whether the flop is good for me, bad for me, or indifferent. If I'm going to bet, you know, I have to be thinking, okay, what am I going to do if I get raised? What am I going to do if I just get called and we're going to go to the next street? Um, you know, obviously, if the flop is really horrible, we continue bet, we get raised, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You, you have two choices. You're going to turn your hand into a complete bluff or you're just going to have to throw it away. And if you do that too many times, it's, it's certainly going to look weak. Um, and once again, you know, the, the problem with playing from out of position. The other thing when it comes to continuation bets, I think it's a good idea actually for to, to keep whatever your blind level is at or the, the pot is at, I think it's a good idea to keep them consistent. Whether you hit the flop, you miss the flop, whether the flop is good for your range, whether the flop is good for our opponent's range, try to keep your bet sizing consistent as to not give your hand away because you'll see it all the time especially in these daily tournaments players often are a little bit inexperienced and uh, you know they'll come out betting big if they really hit the flop or if they've got a big pair and a bunch of undercards come um you know they'll bet really small if they miss it they'll maybe make a medium-sized bet uh if they're on some sort of draw and maybe they'll just check it if they completely miss it. You do that enough, and good players are going to pick up on it um, and exploit you, especially when they have position on you. So I think a bet sizing, you know, uh, between a third and half the pot is fine. I would probably bet size around 600 or 650 uh, into a pot of 1,300. Um, Maybe the exception would be is if I had a big over pair like aces or kings, and let's say the flop was queen eight to rainbow, I probably would make a pot size bet at a flop like that. Um, and, you know, if someone's going to try and draw it on you on that type of a flop, you you really have to make them pay for it, and uh, you know you'll figure out soon enough if you're up against a set, and even then you may not be able to get away from it. Um, anyway, if a flop is really bad for us, let's say we raise with the ace king of diamonds and the flop is, you know, a six, seven, eight with two clubs, uh, you know, 
you can see bet it, but if you get called, um, it's probably time to shut it down. There, you're, you're, it's just not worth investing any more chips in. Or conversely, let's say you raise with pocket eights, you get called, three over cards flop, including an ace. Um, you know, you can see bet at once uh, to represent the bigger hand, but if you get called, uh, your hand is, is basically cooked. Um, you know, and the question becomes, well, are you going to turn it into a bluff? Uh, probably isn't going to work. Um, but you never know. And once again, you, you really have to break down individual hands to really get into it. Um, any, any flop that's good for our range, uh, absolutely you're going to want to see bet that, uh, especially if there's not an obvious draw uh, in that flop. And, you know, if our opponent flo- uh, folds, great. Um, pick up your chips and go to the next hand. You know, a flop that's good for our opponent's range, uh, you know, hopefully we've been paying attention, um, uh, you know, trying to trying to put players on hands. Um, you know, once again, I, it's, I'm probably going to see bet 80% of the time um, unless the flop is just just incredibly horrible for my hand. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, you just stab at it once and your opponent will fold. Um, things to, th- other things to think about, what kind of a player are they? Meaning, if the player that called me from the button is just a, a textbook calling station, I'll check any kind of draw um, or if I miss, I'll just check it because chances are good you're going to check behind. Because um, if you bet, you're going to get called. You know, if and if you know you're going to get called, and you don't have anything, take the free card. Um, it's probably going to come. And once again, if it is a calling station and you really hit the flop hard, or you've got aces and you catch the queen eight two rainbow. Yeah, get some chips in there, get a call or two, um, and, and make some money. Um, if the player is a maniac, you know, once again, it's, 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 it's kind of hard to speculate. Every hand is different. But, um, you know, if you think there's a pretty good chance you know, you're not only going to get called, you're going to get raised. Um, and you're gonna and you're gonna continuation bet with air. You're gonna be put to some really tough decisions. So you might want to check and play pot control. Um, those are the are the two things I, I really try and think about when it comes to players. Um, you know, it's are they calling station? Are they a maniac? If they're playing ABC poker, um, you know that that's easy enough to figure out. Um, and once again, I think this you know illustrates true why you always want to be um, playing from position if you can because it's just it's just so much easier to do it. You know, you, the whole world opens up for you when you're playing from position rather than trying to get involved in some in some kind of guessing game. Um, anyway, uh, once again, just real quick, uh, I try not to vary my continuation bets too much. I don't want to really give anything away, positive or negative. 
I'll usually continuation bet unless the flop is just absolutely horrible. Or if I'm getting against a maniac who I'm quite certain is going to raise me, um, you know, I'm going to definitely want to have the goods to play against a player like that. Um, you know, and putting your play, putting your opponent on hands, uh, really important to do. Um, that's all I have for this week. Good luck at the tables, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Okay, so that's it for today. Uh, thanks to the Rex, the pros, everybody who's given feedback. Tell others about us. If you want to wear a patch, let me know. If you want to back me in the Millionaire Maker, let me know. Otherwise, if you have any other feedback, topic suggestions, hand situations, reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or email me at stevefredland at gmail.com. That's it, everybody. Have a good week on the felt.